This morning, we are continuing in Mark chapter 6. So if you haven't already turned there, please find your place in Mark 6. Have you ever wished that you could take something back? And by that, I'm not talking about that Christmas present or the purchase that you made the other day. Not taking it back to a store, but taking back something that you've done. Take back something that you've said. I think we all have. I think we can all relate to that. Um, Maybe it was a choice you made that involved consequences that you would rather have avoided. Or perhaps it was giving in to temptation. Something that you failed to say or something that you failed to do and you wish you could go back and make that decision again. If you can relate to that, then I think this section of Mark will make sense to you. I think you'll understand in part, where Herod was coming from. Because we have three main characters in this section. We have John the Baptist, we have Herod Antipas, most of the time I'm just going to call him Herod because that's easier to say, and then his wife Herodias. Those are our main characters, and the stakes in this story are very high. Herod had multiple decisions, and at least some of them he later wished that he could take back. We know that from the story things that he wished he could change. But by then it was too late. Whatever remnant of moral purity was still there, it was too late for that. Whatever he could do to spare a man's life, it was too late for that. Another man's life was at stake in the decisions that he was making. And over and over as we read this story, we read that Herod chose to sin and to continue in sin, not to turn from it, not to repent from it. Why? How does a person get to the point of choosing to commit adultery or choosing to commit murder? I think in most instances, that's not just a one-time decision. That's, I think, much more likely to be a progression, a succession of decisions that led to that moment. I would call that the downward spiral of sin. And that, I believe, is what we're going to see in this passage this morning. I mentioned last week that the section we're in has a sandwich structure again. So it begins with the mission of the 12. Jesus called the 12 to him, sent them out two by two. And while they're outgoing, Mark backtracks and tells us the story of John the Baptist and his death. And then the 12 come back. So the same way I did last week, I'm going to read the entire section, but we're going to focus today on verses 14 to 29. So would you please stand with me? Hopefully you've had a chance to find our passage And I'm going to read, starting in verse 6, so Mark 6, 6, halfway through that verse, going to verse 30. Then Jesus went about the villages in a circuit, teaching, and he called the twelve to him and began to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. Also he said to them, in whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place. And whoever will not receive you nor hear you, when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So they went out and preached that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now, King Herod heard of him, for his name had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said, it is Elijah. And others said, it is the prophet, or like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard, he said, this is John, whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. For John had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Therefore, Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Then an opportune day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers, and the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced 
and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. He also swore to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. Yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. Let's pray together, please. Our Father, we thank you that we can come to you in prayer. We thank you that we can have a relationship with you through the shed blood of Jesus. We thank you for your power that raised him from the grave and the hope of eternal life that we have in him. And Lord, as we look at this rather dark portion of Scripture, give us an understanding of sin and how it looks to you. Give us an understanding of the decisions that we make and the consequences that they cause. But Lord, please do not leave us there in our study today. But also show us the provision of Jesus and his shed blood that forgives sins. The cleansing flow that takes our sins and washes us and makes us white as snow. Lord, help us to understand repentance and to understand forgiveness. And as we receive those by faith, that we would rejoice in you and in what you have done in saving us. Lord, I pray for your help, the help of your Holy Spirit, who is ultimately the author of this book, that you would enable me to teach accurately, that I would say what you want me to say and leave out the things you want me to leave out. And ultimately, that you would teach this passage to each one of us, that we would have ears that are ready to hear and hearts that are eager to obey. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I know... Many of you, maybe most of you, don't care a whole lot about the preparation that goes into this and what I'm thinking. But for those of you who've been keeping track, I thought I was going to be on this a week or two ago. And when we didn't make it through past verse 6 of the chapter the first week, I thought, okay, well, we'll combine because I really don't want to spend that long on Herod and the the mess of John the Baptist. And the Lord kind of rerouted me some more. So yes, we are going to spend time talking about this sordid story this morning. And as I just prayed, my, my goal, my desire for us is that we would not go away from here just knowing more about the soap opera of Herod, Antipas, and, and Herodias, but that we would go from here understanding sin is ugly, but Jesus is the rescuer, and God is wonderful and gracious and merciful, that he would, even in our sin, provide cleansing and provide forgiveness and provide atonement for that. So that's where I would like to go with this. Some weeks as I study, there is a particular commentary or sometimes a particular sermon that I listen to that is helpful to me, especially helpful to me. And that was true this week. Dr. Gary Reimers is a professor I had back in college, and he pastors a church in South Carolina, and he did a very good job explaining the progression of Herod's sin and the effects of conscience in this story really what a guilty conscience drives him toward. And as I thought through and wrote down my main points, I realized that I was drawing pretty heavily on what he had preached through this, so I wanted to credit him and let you know 
that these are the four main points that I saw in this passage this week as I consider it, and several of them were similar to his, so I wanted to tell you that. The main points are all about unconfessed sin. I have four of them here. Number one, unconfessed sin leads to a guilty conscience. Unconfessed sin will lead you to a guilty conscience. Number two, unconfessed sin leads to faulty thinking. You will not think straight if you have unconfessed sin in your life. You will not think straight if you have a guilty conscience. And I'm sure many of us in the room have rela- can relate to that. You've experienced it before. Then number three and four go together. They overlap on the same verses. Unconfessed sin leads to more sin. If we're harboring sin within us, it's going to lead us into more sin. That lie you told, now you have to say, tell another lie, or you have to do something else to cover it up, or now you're stealing, and now you have to lie about that. Sin snowballs. It compounds. And then number four, unconfessed sin affects other people. It will never stop with you. It's not just that secret habit that nobody else knows about. It will affect people around you. In some cases, innocent parties, as it did John the Baptist. So those are the main ideas that I want to get across, and we'll cover each one individually, beginning with the first one. Unconfessed sin leads to a guilty conscience. I'm beginning now in verse 14, if you want to follow along. Now King Herod heard of him, for his name had become well known. It says King Herod there. This is referring to Herod Antipas, or Antipas, if you want to make it a little more English. He is the seventh son of Herod the Great. Herod, as you may know, is not a title. I mean, it's a name. It's a title, not a name. I said that backward. Herod is a title, not a name, just like Pharaoh in the Old Testament. That that is a kingly name. So it's not that his first name was Herod or anything like that, but it's a description, and it's one that they really liked. The Herod family, the Herod dynasty, we sometimes call it, liked that name because it comes from the same word as hero or heroic, and the That's how they wanted to be remembered, as the best, the bravest, the most wonderful leaders, and they certainly were not that. He is sometimes called a tetrarch, because that is what he was. He wasn't a king. He was a tetrarch. Um, He was tetrarch over Galilee, that's where Jesus was ministering, and Perea from 4 BC to AD 39, so 45 years, give or take. His father was Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the ruler of this area, the combined region of Palestine, when Jesus was born. Herod is the one, the Herod the Great is the one that we read about in Matthew 2. The wise men came to see him and he plotted to kill Jesus and his effort to that ended in him sending soldiers to kill all of the infant boys, the baby boys, two years and under in Bethlehem. That's his dad, Herod the Great. Herod the Great had at least 10 wives and at least seven sons. Some sources said nine sons. So big family, messy, strange family. So I, I don't even try to write this down, please. But those are the seven sons that were named in the, the sources that I found. And these where I have arrows, these are the three we care about for our story today. We care about Aristobulus, Herod II, or Herod Philip, and then, of course, the one I've been talking about, Herod Antipas. So those are the three sons that we care about for this. Not quite those same three sons, When Herod the Great died, Rome divided his kingdom. So that's how we got a tetrarch. They divided up, if you want to think of it as the state of North Carolina, then this guy got these counties and this guy got those counties. That was kind of the idea of the division. The entire family was exceedingly wicked. It was exceedingly dysfunctional, as you will see. One commentary said divorce, adultery, incest, drunkenness, Striptease dancing and murder characterized these Herods. It was sin on steroids. And in the middle of all this, we have our first main character, Herod Antipas, and he is consumed with a guilty conscience. You say, how do you know that? You won't find the word conscience in our translation here. But it seems pretty obvious to me that he's suffering from a guilty conscience. We'll read about that in a moment. It says here that King Herod, even though he wasn't really king, Tetrarch Herod heard... And then in my translation, it's italicized, so they're adding words to try to make it clear. For his name had become well known. He'd heard of Jesus. How did he hear of Jesus? What's been going on? What's in the story? Jesus had called the 12 to him and sent them out two by two. And they're ministering, they're preaching, they're even working miracles in the name of Jesus. So as they do that, this is 
Herod's territory and he hears about it. He hears what's going on because Jesus, the name of Jesus, was becoming well-known. That's important, that his name was being well-known because we are his disciples as well and as we do good works in his name. He should be the one getting the credit. It should be his name that's becoming better and better known. So as he hears these things about what the disciples are doing, maybe he's heard things about Jesus, he begins wondering who this Jesus person is. And others were wondering who this Jesus person. And most of them, as we know, weren't willing to accept or just flat out didn't know that he was the son of God. Those who heard that thought, no, he's not Messiah. He can't be that. So they began to come up with theories of who is this Jesus person. And Herod has his own theory, and others had other theories, and that's what Mark tells us about next. I'm halfway into verse 14, and he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said it is Elijah, and others said it is the prophet or like one of the prophets. Why would they think Elijah? Well, Elijah was supposed to come back before the Messiah came. So they thought, this guy's doing incredible works. His teaching is with authority. Maybe this guy is the forerunner to the Messiah. They didn't understand. That was John the Baptist who had already done that. Others said, it is the prophet. And when they say that, that would be the one that Moses said would come, who will be like me. And they thought, okay, maybe it's that guy. Maybe it's the one that Moses predicted. They're getting warmer, I guess, with that. But others said, it is like one of the prophets. I read that some people even thought, Jeremiah. One of the prophets, that's sort of a safe position. Obviously, he's a prophet. He's speaking for God. He's working miracles. Okay, he must be one of the prophets. And that, that's a really safe position that the, the Old Testament prof, prophetic line has been resumed. What this points out to us is that they at least understood that there was something unique. There was something special. There was something supernatural about Jesus. They're trying to explain without saying what's true he is the Messiah, he is the Son of God. They're trying to explain it other ways, explain away what he's doing. But that's the different theories that were going around. Here's the issue. He's greater than any one of those ideas. A greater than Elijah was there. A greater than any of the previous prophets was there. And here's what we need to remember. The Life Application Study Bible says, what people think does not change who Jesus is. So we've talked about this recently. If you ask somebody, who do you think Jesus is? What do you think about Jesus? You'll get an answer because most people have an opinion. Many will be willing to share it. But what I think or what you think, apart from the Bible, about who Jesus is, is not as important as who he really is. So we need to know who he is and we need to respond to who he is and what he's done. Verse 16 comes back to Herod. And when Herod heard... What did he hear? He heard what had been happening in his region with the two by two going around. He heard, he heard what Jesus had been doing and he said, and this time it's much more definitive, this is John. I know, I don't care what you think. You think it's one of the prophets. You think it's Elijah? I know, I know. This is John whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. And it's even more emphatic than that in the Greek. This is John whom I myself beheaded. Now, no, that, that doesn't mean that he did the execution, but he's, he's taking credit, or maybe we should say he's taking blame for it. This greatly affected him. We're going to see he didn't want John the Baptist to die. That wasn't part of his plan by any means. So he is suffering from a guilty conscience. Here's a verse from Proverbs. I don't know if you know it or not, but Proverbs 28.1 says, the wicked flee when no one pursues. You ever been there? You've, you've been doing something wrong, your hand is caught in the proverbial cookie jar, and all of a sudden you're looking around, did anybody see that? That's what he has. He has a guilty conscience, and therefore he hears somebody's working miracles. John the Baptist, as far as we know, never worked a miracle. But the message is the same. We talked about that last week. Repentance is the common theme. So he says, this is it. John the Baptist is coming back. He's going to haunt me. He's going to get me. Lots of superstition, lots of paranoia among the Herods as well. So his conscience is getting to him. And the remainder of this passage from verse 17 on is a flashback that Mark gives us of how John the Baptist died. This had happened perhaps as much as a year before the events that we've been reading with the disciples going out two by two. 
So first idea, unconfessed sin leads to a guilty conscience, and it does. Most of us understand what it's like not to be able to sleep or to be nervous that somebody knows or somebody's going to find out or somebody's going to see. And that's what he's dealing with. The conscience, by the way, is something that God gave us. And it can be trained by the Bible. You can have a conscience that's off base in some way. But in general, we all have an inner idea of what is right and wrong. God made us that way. If you want to read about that more, you can read Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 2, and read about our conscience either condemning us or excusing us. So it's a built-in mechanism, if you will, in our thought processes to know this is right, this is wrong. And in this case, he knew what he was doing was wrong. He could have stopped there. He could have stopped and confessed. He could have stopped and repented and changed his mind and changed his course of action. But he did not. So his sin remained unconfessed. And we go to step two here. Unconfessed sin leads to faulty thinking. He did not think straight as we read through this process. For Herod himself, I'm in verse 17, had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. Because John had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herod imprisoned John. Had John the Baptist done anything wrong? No, he hadn't. He was a righteous man. And Herod even knew that. We'll read that in a few minutes. But he imprisoned him why well we find out in verse 20 he's protecting john who's he protecting john from his wife he's protecting john from his wife so let's talk about that side of the family it says here his brother philip now if you start researching this you'll find that of the seven known sons of herod two of them were named philip it may be sort of a George Foreman complex, I don't know. But he named two sons Philip, and the one we're interested in was in Rome by this point. He had been disinherited by his father, so he's no longer in line to be a tetrarch, a king, or anything else. He has been disowned. Why? Because Herod the Great, that's a different day, different sermon. Herod the Great was very paranoid and killed some of his wives and some of his sons. He was paranoid that someone would take away his throne, take away his kingdom. So he disowned this Philip, and he was living with his wife, Herodias, in Rome as a private citizen. Now, this Philip was also an uncle, technically a half-uncle, to Herodias, his wife. So where it says Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, let's figure out who is Herodias to Herod Antipas. I have a little chart here to try to help you out. Please don't write this down either because I don't want you to remember it, but to explain it. There's our other son of Herod, the great, Aristobulus. It's his daughter, and that makes it Antipas's niece, also makes it Philip's niece. So this guy marries his half-niece. To Herod Antipas, our main character, she would also be his sister-in-law. And by this point, he has married her. So his niece, his sister-in-law, now his wife. You got that? That's important to our story. David Jeremiah wrote this. Herod committed several sins in marrying Herodias. First, at the time, he was already married to the daughter of King Aretas IV. Herod Antipas had already married a princess, princess of the Nabataean Empire to the south. And in order to marry this woman he's fallen in love with, who's his sister-in-law and his niece, he had to divorce the princess. Side note, that didn't go well. Aretas was mad that he had divorced this bride, the unification of the kingdom, and it ended up going, he went to war, and it didn't go well for Herod, and Rome had to come in and rescue Herod from the mess that he created. Second, Herodias was the daughter of Erastabulus, another son of Herod the Great, which made her his niece a forbidden union. We'll look at the verse in Leviticus in just a minute. Third, Herodias had married Philip, another of Herod's brothers, in order to Mary Herod, she had to divorce Philip. So we have two divorces going on in order for these two to get together and incest. That's when a brother and a sister or close relatives marry. 
So there's a lot of wrong stuff here. For today, I'm going to skip over the whole topic of divorce and remarriage. Not because it's not important, but because we have a lot of other stuff to talk about, and we're going to get to it. We're going to get to Mark chapter 10, in which the Pharisees came and asked Jesus about divorce and remarriage, and we're going to cover it in detail when we get there. But understand that even that divorce is hinted at in what John said. Because what did John call Herodias? This is probably a public denunciation of Herod, and he calls Herodias your brother Philip's wife. He didn't acknowledge, he didn't say your wife, he said your brother Philip's wife. This is part of the problem. In other words, John the Baptist and ultimately God were not recognizing this new marriage. Because John had said, and the verb tenses say he's, he's said it more than once, not necessarily directly to Herod, but maybe, but he's been saying, he's been talking, he's been telling people that it is not lawful. Why does that matter? Does Herod even care about the law? You wouldn't think so, except that in part because of where he's ruling, he had publicly said that he had converted to Judaism. So he's supposed to be keeping the law. But the law says you can't have her, and that's what John the Baptist, a very bold, righteous man, is speaking the truth to power. And in this case, he's speaking the word of God. And what is this based on? Here are two verses from Leviticus. I'm going to read from a different translation to try to make it clearer for us. When he says it's not lawful, this is what he means. Leviticus 18, 16. Do not have sexual relations with your brother's wife. That would dishonor your brother. Pretty straightforward, but he's violating that. A couple chapters later, Leviticus 20, 21. If a man marries his brother's wife, it is an act of impurity. He has dishonored his brother. They will be childless. Side note, as far as we know, Herodias and Antipas did not have any children of their own. So twice it is spelled out, don't marry your sister. Don't marry your sister-in-law. Probably implied, don't marry your niece either. Just some basic things that you would think wouldn't have to be written down. But God knew that we need some things spelled out, and he did. And John the Baptist is out there publicly saying, it is not lawful for you to be married to Herodias. That's your brother's wife. So let's see the response. Verse 19, therefore Herodias held it against him, John the Baptist, and wanted to kill him, but she could not. What's holding her back? Better question is probably, who's holding her back? Her husband. Verse 20, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. Herodias held it against him, literally had it in for him. So of your translations will say, she held a grudge, had a grudge, nursed a grudge against him. But Herod feared John. He has a superstition, a dread of John, a fixation about John. So what does he do? He protects him. He tries to protect John the Baptist. And how's he going to do that? I'm going to put you under arrest. I haven't done anything wrong, but my wife wants to kill you, so I'm going to imprison you. Continuing in verse 20, and when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. The he did many things is not really a very good translation from what I read. It, it's better, some of you have, he was perplexed, he was puzzled, that's closer to it. What it says is that there was a big battle going on inside Herod. Why? Because first off, his conscience is telling him, this is wrong. Not only that, God sent a prophet to tell him this is wrong. So he knows what he's doing is wrong. That's first conflict inside. Second, he loves this woman he married. He wasn't supposed to marry her. He shouldn't have married her. But he did. And she hates John the Baptist. And Herod likes John the Baptist. It had to be a very strange internal struggle even there because every time I talk to him, he's going to tell me I'm doing wrong. He's a righteous man. And yet he kept hearing him. He kept wanting to talk to him, to hear what he had to say. What does that sound like to you? It sounds like his guilty conscience is causing him not to think straight. He has this tug going on inside. The Bible has a term for that. It's being double-minded. James 1, verse 8 says, A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. I found a description of that double-minded man this week. Grossly evil with some good impulses. Evil, but with a few 
good impulses. That, that's a pretty good description of Herod and what he's doing here. Let me share with you a couple of verses from Romans chapter 1. I mentioned that we can read about the conscience and the way our thoughts progress when we have unconfessed sin. Romans 1, Romans 2. So here's Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress or hold down the truth in unrighteousness. That is what Herod was doing here. He knows the truth. He doesn't want to talk about it. He wants to ignore it. He wants to pretend he doesn't know it. He's holding down. He's suppressing the truth. I will skip over a bunch of verses, and they're all good, but for sake of time, I'm going to skip to verse 28 in Romans 1. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, they didn't want to think about God. God gave them over to a debased mind to do things which are not fitting. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. Does any of that sound familiar for the story we're reading right now? Yes. Just about all of them. You, you could treat it as a checklist. Between Herod and Herodias, I think we can cover every one of those descriptions in Romans one twenty nine. So there is tension in the palace. John keeps getting called, whenever Herod's at that particular palace, bring John out of the dungeon. I want to talk to him some more. I want to hear what he has to say. What does he have to say? Well, we know his message was of repentance every time he preached. So probably every conversation was, you know this is wrong, right? We've talked about this. And I don't know what else he said. But the same conversation over and over. And in the meantime, Herodias, if she was there in the same palace, better not be a time when she's around because she wants to kill him. So she's just biding her time. She's waiting. She hates him. She wants to kill him. Herod's protecting him. So she waits. We've moved through our first two points. We're moving to three and four, and we'll do those together. We saw that unconfessed sin leads to a guilty conscience. It leads to faulty thinking. We don't think straight. And then three and four, unconfessed sin leads to more sin and it affects others. It always affects others. Now, some of you may be wondering, what are you talking about? Sin leads to more sin. I, I know murder is a sin, and I, I guess, okay, yeah, he, he was committing incest, so the marriage was a sin. What other sin is here? Here are the sins I see as we progress through the rest of the passage. Lust is what got him in trouble in the first place. He went to Rome to visit his brother and sister-in-law and fell in love with his sister-in-law. And between the two of them, I don't know who seduced who, but they left. She left her husband. So then he has put a, an innocent man in prison. So we have a fault imprisonment. This also is wrong. I believe what we're reading in the rest of this passage involves drunkenness, although it's not explicitly stated. That's why I have it in parentheses there. More lust, because I believe the dance was very sensual, Again, not explicitly stated, so I have it in parentheses. Pride, that is specifically stated. He didn't want to lose his reputation as a good leader among all of the other dignitaries. And then murder, and we understand that one. Hopefully nobody here is going to argue that that wasn't a sin. So we have this list of sins. One is leading to another is leading to another. Why? Because he didn't stop. It's that snowball rolling down the hill, and if we do not stop and confess our sins and agree with God about our sin and say, God, would you forgive me? I'm turning my back on that sin and I'm coming back to you. That's where it stops. We call that repentance. And until we do that, until by God's grace, we stop and turn, it's just going to keep progressing and it's just going to keep getting worse and it's going to destroy us and destroy people around us. Verse 21, then an opportune day came when Herod on his birthday gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers, and the chief men of Galilee. An opportune day. The New American Standard says a strategic day. It is the same root word that we find over in Luke 4.13. That's the verse that came to my mind when I read that opportune word. This is describing the temptation of Jesus. And it says, now when the devil had ended every temptation, so we've had the 40 days go by, Jesus successfully defended himself by scripture against the temptations of the devil. He is victorious. Now it says, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from Jesus until an opportune time. See, Satan is work, at work in this Herod family. And right now he's at work in Herodias. I'm not saying she was possessed by the devil, but I'm saying he is instigating 
Because where does murder come from? He is the father of lies. He is the father of murders. He's a murderer from the beginning. That's what we read in the Bible about Satan. So when there is a murder that takes place, he is ultimately behind it. And just like he was going to wait until a, a better time, a, an opportune moment to try to tempt Jesus again, she's waiting. She's waiting for the opportunity. Another verse about Satan, 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober, be vigilant, be careful, be watchful. Because your adversary, your enemy, the devil, is walking around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He's watching. He's not everywhere, and he doesn't know everything, but he is trying to trip us up. He's trying to tempt us. He's trying to destroy, because that's what he does. It says, on that opportune day, that day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a feast. So part of what I'm sharing with you, as you've already noticed, is from history. That's not inspired, but trying to put together from multiple sources of history and be as accurate as we can, these feasts put on for birthdays, by the way, the Jews of that time didn't really celebrate birthdays, but the Gentiles did. And in the Herod family, if there was a birthday party, it was all men. Think bachelor party. You're on the right track. So only men are invited, and it tells us who was invited. It was, uh, someone said, an extravagant display of wealth and an extravagant provision for pleasure. Someone else said that it was a drinking crowd that would become increasingly sensual and nasty as the evening progressed. So who are these people invited to this male-only birthday party for Herod? They are the nobles, the lords, the great ones, those who held civil office, the high-ranking military officials, the high officers, and then the chief men of Galilee, so the social leaders of the region. So this is a big social event for the movers and shakers of Galilee, all the influential men who were under Herod's jurisdiction. He invited them. Why does that matter? Well, we're going to see he cares what they think. Verse 22, and when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, and we'll continue the verse in a minute, Herodias' daughter. So we have another person now introduced to the story, a fourth person. We know from outside scripture, tradition tells us her name was Salome. Josephus tells us that her name is Salome. That is Herodias' daughter, okay? So we just add a generation to all those other relationships, kind of. That would make Salome, his great niece, that would make Salome his niece, and that would also make him her stepdaughter. I was joking with Carson that we just needed a whole diagram on my, on my own grandpa. It's that kind of idea. It's very twisted and confused, but this person whom he should have cared about, whom he should have protected, teenage girl, a lot of people think she was 15, but 12 to 18, that age, his stepdaughter, Someone the mother should have been protecting of her, the father, stepfather should have been protecting of her? Uh-uh, not in the Herod family. No, she's the one who is sent to do a dance. This was a highly suggestive dance. This is basically a provocative dance. It's not that that type of dance would have been rare at this type of party. That's not what's unusual here. What's unusual is it's, Herod's daughter, stepdaughter, coming in to do this. And apparently she did it well, because when it says that she pleased Herod and his guests, it's not that her tap dancing was so wonderful, probably. It means that it was a very sensual and seductive dance, and it was pleasing them sensually. And they are so pleased, probably shouting, excited. Verse 22 says, the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want and I will give it to you. He also swore to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. It doesn't say here that he was drunk. I don't know that to be true. But it was typical at these parties, just as dancers were typical at these parties, especially toward the end of them, drinking. Alcohol was free-flowing here. So he probably was not thinking straight, he may have been totally drunk by this point, but he says, I'll give you whatever you want. And then he says, he swears to her, he uses an oath and says, up to half my kingdom, a kingdom he didn't have, 
Rome would not have liked that he said that because he had no kingdom to give. He's a tetrarch. He has, it'd be like saying, I'm the head over Brunswick County, a a region, and saying, and I'm going to give you the whole United States if you ask for it. That doesn't make any sense. But that's, that's what he's saying. He's, he's swearing uh, in front of all his guests, this is what I'm going to do for you. You just name it, name your price, you've got it. Verse 24, she doesn't know what to ask for. So she went out to her mother and said, what shall I ask? And she, the mother, said, the head of John the Baptist. She was probably asking and saying, should I ask for a new car? Should I ask for a, a horse? What should I ask for? A cell phone, there you go, the the latest iPhone. That's what she was going to ask for. Is that what I should ask for? And I don't think she expected the answer she got because she was really asking her mother, uh, I don't read Greek, but the resources I saw say that she's thinking in terms of her own well-being, her own happiness. I did a good job, what should I get? Well, it it seems like Herodias has this all worked out because she knew exactly what to ask for. Why? Why? as we come to one of Mark's favorite words, immediately, verse 25, she came in with haste and said to the king, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. So Herodias didn't miss a beat, ask for John the Baptist's head. I want him dead. And then it seems like Salome, the daughter, embellishes a little bit. And she says, I'd like it on a platter. Verse 26, a, a, a big serving dish. Verse 26, and the king was exceedingly sorry, yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. At the beginning of my sermon, I asked about a time when you wished you could take it back. Wished you could take something back, something you said, something you did. And this moment right here may have been the greatest example of that in Herod's life. This is a serious term. When it says he was exceedingly sorry, it's the same term Mark uses several chapters later to describe Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Agonizing. Sorrowful unto death. He's genuinely sorry. Last week, we looked at 2 Corinthians 7 and saw that godly sorrow produces repentance. But there's no repentance here. So it's not the right kind of sorrow. John Phillips said, remorse, simple sorrow, is not the same as repentance. We can be sorry and then go on to do worse. Herod was sorry that his drunken tongue had landed him in such an awkward situation that he was not sorry enough to do what was right. He was not sorry about his sin. He was sorry about the consequences. It was, he was sorry about the cost. As a monarch, as a leader, oaths were considered sacred. They were considered unbreakable. So because of the oaths, he's going to give in to his wife who wanted John the Baptist dead all the time. It also says because of his guests. He has to keep up appearances. At this point, even at this point, theoretically, he could have stopped. He could have said, no, I will not have someone murdered, an innocent man killed. But how would he have looked in front of all his friends and cronies? So pride itself is keeping him from doing the right thing. He wants to save face. Proverbs 29.25 tells us, the fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. He's trapped by his own pride. Verse 27, another immediately. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. Verse 29, when his disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. Someone called this the only act of decency in the whole section. His disciples came and took the body which culturally was very important that they get that body buried and treat it with dignity and respect. So they took the corpse and laid it in a tomb. We can read in the parallel account in Matthew 14, we'll read that John's disciples took the body, then they came and told Jesus what had happened. And when Jesus heard about it, he withdrew by boat 
to a remote place to be alone. He was sad. We don't have it recorded in scripture. He probably cried. John the Baptist was his second cousin. John the Baptist was the one who prepared the way for him, the voice crying in the wilderness. Where did all this start? It started with lust. It started with a man who wanted another woman who was not his wife. And where did it lead? Ultimately, it led to murder. And we won't go through the list again, but there are multiple sins in between. Why? Why did it get to that point? How did it get to that point? It got to that point because when his conscience was pricking him, he shoved it down and he ignored it. And when God's man came and spoke truth to him, he said, I like you, but I'm not going to do what you say. In fact, just go back down in the dungeon. When I want to hear from you again, I'll let you know. And his greed and his pride and probably his drunkenness and more lust led him to allow John the Baptist to be murdered. Now, I'm not saying that any of you children or adults in the room are going to become a murderer. But any of us are capable of committing any sin. Because we live in sinful flesh, even after we're saved, after we have the Holy Spirit inside us. There are times we're tempted to sin, and there are times that we will fail. But what should we do at that point? I stumbled, I fell. That's when we go to God. That's when we go back to God. We confess our sin, he is faithful, he is righteous, and he forgives our sin and cleanses us, wipes the slate clean. And we begin again. But whether you're a child of God or not, where we get into trouble is when that sin festers. Those of you who've ever had an open wound, you have to protect that. You have to keep the infection out, right? Some of you have been hospitalized before. You've had an incision, whatever the case is. You have to keep the infection out. You keep that clean. How do we do that spiritually? We keep coming back to God. God, I sinned. God, please forgive me for that thought. God, please forgive me for what I just said. God, please forgive me for what I just did. called repentance. It's returning to God. We've said that unconfessed sin leads to a guilty conscience. It leads to faulty thinking. It leads to more sin, and it affects others. It sure affected John the Baptist. I think in the story it may have had pretty significant effects on Salome. Gary Reamer said, sin is a powerful, destructive force. There is no controlling it. There is only repenting of it. You cannot play with sin. You can't just tolerate it in my life. Yeah, someday I'll, I'll stop that. You aren't guaranteed of tomorrow, neither am I. If the word of God is telling us this is sinful, if our conscience is bearing witness that this is sinful, it's time to deal with the sin. Now. And what are we going to find? We're going to find grace and we're going to find mercy. Every time. So repentance is turning my back on the sin and looking back to God to rescue you from my sin, to rescue me from myself, my foolishness. So if anyone is here this morning, if anyone is watching online who is not a believer, not a child of God, your invitation is to repent, to put your faith in him, to change your mind that will result in a change of action and change your belief about your sin and about the salvation that Jesus has offered us. Many of you in the room, and any who may be watching online, many of you are believers. So I'd like to remind you of two verses. First, Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Because this is a different topic for a different day, but there are times we suffer from our conscience about past sin. Yes, I've, I've asked forgiveness for that. It is under the blood, but I still feel so guilty. There's no condemnation. Satan has no part of you if you are in Christ, if you have the Holy Spirit inside you. 
Here's another one. Hebrews 9.14. The blood of Christ will cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He can cleanse our hearts. He can restore and renew and re-educate, if necessary, our consciences. Reprogram. Reset. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Before I pray, I want to invite you to act on anything God is showing you. And what that means is that if there is some sin that has come to your mind while I've been preaching, it may or may not be something I've mentioned. But if you know that there's sin in your life, would you please confess it and talk to God right now and begin again? If you've never come to God and asked for salvation in Christ, now's the day. Now's the time. You can do it. Call on him, verbally or in your heart, that you would pray and say, God, please forgive me. Please deal with my sin. I can't do anything about it, but I believe you can, and I believe Jesus came to die in my place. Now, I'm about to close this in prayer. If you've made a decision this morning and you'd like me to remember you, not by name, but if you would like me to remember you in prayer, would you simply slip your hand up and back down right now? I'd be glad to pray for you. Our Lord, we're thankful that in the midst of darkness, you are light. In the messiest of our human stories, you weren't afraid or too proud, but Jesus, you humbled yourself and came and dwelt among us and became obedient even to the death of the cross. So Lord, thank you for entering into our mess and saving us. And thank you for forgiving us and cleaning us up and allowing us to come back to you over and over when necessary. pray that you would continue to convict us where we need it and that we would respond and that we would confess and forsake the sin in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.